Lord, again, we are just so thankful for all of your blessings, every spiritual blessing. And we ask that as Peter's son comes and speaks to us, that his sermon would be from your word and that we would be encouraged and challenged as a church and that ultimately Christ would be glorified. We also pray for Sunday school now. Uh, we thank you for the, for the ministry that the teachers have. And we ask that the, the children in our congregation would be learning from your word and growing each day to love you more. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, Isaac, are you here? I had asked Isaac to read. Okay, he's here. So Isaac will read the, the passage that we are going to look at today, which is Philippians chapter 1. And verses 12 to 26. So over to you, Isaac. Which is in Philippians 1, chapter 1, verse 12 to 26. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is, is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly accept and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is in Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being, with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Thank you, Isaac. Okay, so Peter, uh, not Peter son, but Peter Curry opened the, uh, the study to the Philippians uh, last week. And, and today, I'm looking from verses 12 to uh, 26. Now, the purpose of the letter to the Philippians was very simple. Uh, Paul simply wanted to write a thank you letter uh, for the gift uh, that the Philippian believers had sent to him while he was in, in prison. And we read of that in Philippians chapter 4, towards the end of uh, that particular chapter. However, in writing this thank you letter, he also pens down very personal thoughts. It's quite a personal letter. His personal experiences, his feelings, the struggles that he goes through while in prison. Uh, so this particular letter to the Philippian church is really packed with emotions. Right? And a particular emotion that we're going to deal with today is found in verses 12 to 26. Paul's desires, his emotions 
whilst in prison, his motivation whilst in prison. And this is why I have decided to change the title from Paul's imprisonment to something called Paul's crucible moments, right? So forgive me if you came with the idea that I'm going to talk about imprisonment. Yes, I am, right? But the intent of today's uh, passage or reading is about his crucible moments. And that's what it is about. Now, I'm sure many of you would have uh, seen a crucible. And those of you who have done, done science in school and in a chemistry lab, uh, you would have seen crucibles. Right? Crucibles are, are small ceramic bowls. And in that small ceramic bowls, what you would normally do is put certain elements in, often metal, and melt it under very high temperature. That's what crucibles do. Uh, you use crucibles for. Sometimes you, would, you put compound into that crucible. Under high temperature, you start separating, separating out uh, the elements. Now, when you apply that concept, that crucible concept, into your own life, what it metaphorically means that as believers, as Christians, even as people, we sometimes go through very difficult trials and testings and and temptations, heating, heat moments in our lives. And that's what crucible moment means. It actually challenges us to, uh, to really reflect on our underlying beliefs and our assumptions and often do change us as individuals. Very often to the better, but sometimes to the worse. Right? Now, what happens sometimes for people, or believe, uh, not for believers, but for people who so-called Christians, when they go through these crucible moments, sometimes they begin to ask the question because they have already always held the assumption that God is always good, right? God is gracious. God is always good. And if God is always good and God is always gracious, why is he putting me through this crucible moment, through those difficult times? And sometimes people get shipwrecked. And that's what happens sometimes to, uh, to so-called Christians. And that's a very, very difficult to answer, uh, the question to answer, because very often that's a question that is often posed by atheists. If God is loving and God is good and God is gracious, why is there so much of suffering in this world today? I'm not going to deal with that. But those are sometimes the things that happens in a person's crucible moment. Right? Can, it can often, sometimes not often, but sometimes be for the worse. But however... Crucible moments are moments in our lives when we begin to question our assumptions, our beliefs, and can refine us for the better. It can make us and change us for the better. And that's what I want to deal with today. So the question is, what was Paul's crucible moments? Now, when you read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 21, right up to 28, it gives us a background of events that led to Paul's crucible moment or led to his period of imprisonment. When Paul completed his missionary journeys, that was the third missionary journey, right? He has gone through several. But after the third missionary journey, he took the trip to Jerusalem. People have told him, hey, Paul, don't go because God has told us that you're going to go through so much of difficulties. But Paul said, no, I'm going to Jerusalem because that's what the Lord wants me to do. So he went across to Jerusalem, and then when he went to the temple, some people, some of the Jews there, uh, saw him with a person called Trophimus, who was an Ephesian, and he was Gentile. So they thought that he had brought a Gentile into the temple and desecrated the temple. 
And not only that, they also said that Paul is a person who violated all of our Jewish traditions and sayings of the forefathers. So there was a huge uproar and Paul was arrested. And for two years, he was imprisoned in Caesarea. And there in Caesarea, he, he, uh, he said that he wanted to be tried in Caesar's court. So because he wanted to be tried in Caesar's court, they had to ship him all the way from Jerusalem, sorry, from Caesarea, which is in Israel, right up to Rome. It was a three-month journey. And I think when we started the book of Acts, we looked at that. And on the way, he was shipwrecked in Malta. Right? So over three months, he traveled, he went to Rome, and then he was imprisoned in Rome, under arrest in Rome for almost two years before he could appear before Pharaoh. So he was incarcerated for four odd years unable to do the work of an evangelist. And that was called Paul's calling. He was imprisoned. He was incarcerated. He could not do anything. And that was Paul's crucible moment. So it's very interesting to really understand the emotions that he was going through during that crucible moment. Now, when you ask these questions, what do crucible moments do in a person's life? And when I considered that, I looked at this and I, I realized that any person going through crucible moments, there are two things that happens to them. First, crucible moments starts refining your character. And of course, more importantly, and that's what we're going to deal with in this passage today, the crucible moment sometimes reveals your motives. Right? So those are two things that happens. So in this study today, we are going to talk about how crucible moments reveal motives. However, let me touch on this fact that crucible moments do refine character. So let me take, for example, good old Moses. Right? Now, if you really want to look into the background of Moses, I suggest that you also read Acts chapter 7. That was the defense of Stephen. You know, when Stephen was to be martyred, he spoke about Moses. Now, this is what he said, that Moses was about 40 years old and Moses thought that he was a somebody, right? That he was a someone. And Acts chapter 7, verse 22 says that he was mighty in words and deeds. He was actually schooled in uh, Pharaoh's courts. He learned the warfare of Egyptians. He understood their military strategy. And that is why he thought in Acts chapter 7, verse 25, that God would use him to deliver the people of Israel. Wow, he thought he was the bee's knees, right? He was really somebody. Until God had to, for the next 40 years, make him a nobody. From someone, he had to be made a no one. So God took him for 40 years to a Midian desert where he learned the preciousness of the character of humility and dependence on God. Before Moses could lead the people of Israel, he had to learn the character of humility and total dependence on the Lord. And that was the refining of his character. So the 40 years in the Midian Desert was Moses' crucible moment. So we all know that. Crucible moments do refine people's character. Now, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 says this. And this is what I read last week and I thought it was appropriate. This is what James says in his writing. My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. 
But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's the refining character of crucible moments. The aspect that I want to deal with today is this. Crucible moments actually clarifies motives. Now that's something that is very important and something that we often forget uh, um, to realize and understand. That God first has to, have to clarify our motives. We need to understand our motives and lay bare our motives before we can actually start refining our character. So we're going to look at Paul's motives that is laid bare to us in verses 12 to 26 of chapter 1. And that's what Isaac read to us this morning. Now, why do I say um, crucible moments reveal motives? I can tell this to you from my own personal testimony. I came to know the Lord in the last year of my high school. Towards the end of the year, the last year of my high school, I came to know the Lord. Now, six months before that, right, there was a, a, a huge issue within Sri Lanka. That's where I was staying in. Uh, there was this ethnic uh, riots that took place, which of course destroyed the livelihood of my family. And as a result, my sister had to leave school, start working in order to support the family. And at the end of my high school, that particular year, I was selected uh, to go into university, right? Into one of the most prestigious engineering school where the acceptance rate was only 1%. Now, you need to understand this. This is the mindset in Sri Lanka. When you enter an engineering school or a medical school, those were the two top schools, when you come out of the school, you're guaranteed a high-paying job. It was almost a ticket to life. Right? And that was what it was. So when I entered the engineering school, after two years, the university shut down. Right? And the reason why it was shut down was because of the communist uprising. Marxism. The universities were the hotbed of Marxism and communist uprising. So the universities were shut down for more than three years. And during that three years, I was unemployed, couldn't get any jobs because no one wanted to, number one, employ a university student. They were suspect, could be Marxist. My Chinese face didn't help. <laughs> right? Unemployment, of course, was uh, very high at that time because the economy was not that good. Right? So it was a crucible moment in my life. And I can still remember at that point in time that God really clarified my motives and laid bare my motives. So I can still remember taking a piece of paper that I had written. And in that paper was written some of my goals in life. Goals are almost part of motives. Number one was this. I wanted to buy a house in two years. I'm telling this to you. This is what I did. Two years, buy a house. Five years time, I want to become a CEO of a company. 10 years time, I want to own a business. And that was my motive. Although I was a believer at that point in time. And God really clarified to me what drives me, what were my motivations before the Lord started refining who I was as a person. So please do understand that. That was what, that was what uh, a crucible moment did to me. And that's what crucible moments do to people. You've got to start clarifying your motives. It laid bare your motives. Now, although, now let me tell this to you, although uh, my crucible moment revealed my self-centered, unspiritual motives, Paul's crucible moment actually clarified to Paul or clarified to us as readers, reveals to us 
a man after God's own desires and heart. And that's what we see in verses 12 to 26. And there are three things that were made clear to Paul during his crucible moments. And these are three things that we are going to look at. These three things constitute motives. First, Paul was made to realize, number one, when he was unable, God was able. And that's what we see there. And secondly, Paul's background, emotions, and desires were clarified to him. Really, if you look at verses 12 to 26, his background emotions, the desires that drove those emotions are laid very, very clear to us. And three, Paul's goal in life was really sharpened. So these were the three aspects of motivation that is revealed to us in these few verses. All right. Now, first, when Paul was physically restricted in prison, unable to do anything, you can see that in that point in time that God really acted so powerfully. Now, sometimes we don't see this in our crucible moments. It often happens after our crucible moments when we reflect back that we realize this. But when God could not do anything, sorry, when Paul could not do anything, sorry, when Paul was restricted, incarcerated, God really acted powerfully in Paul's life. Now, when you look at the whole of Paul's imprisonment for four years, that's what I did, just did a summary of what happened to him during the four years, you could see what Paul's crucible moments produced in his life. Four things that I've uh, looked here. Number one, in verse 12, Paul says that it, that it uh, ended in the furtherance of the gospel. That is verse 12. In verse 14, Paul says, it encouraged the brethren to be bold, to speak the word of God, to be bold in their faith. Third, we can see here in verse uh, 13 and also in chapter 4, verse 22. That salvation of the people in Caesar's household. He says, because of my chains, right? There were people who were saved in Caesar's household. And it refers to some of them as saints in Caesar's household. What else? Well, during Paul's imprisonment, he wrote four epistles, which we have today as scriptures. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Four epistles during his time of incarceration. And of course, it resulted in the salvation of Onesimus, a runaway slave that you read. If you read the Philippians, you can see that. And Onesimus, history tells us, that finally became a bishop in Ephesus. So he went from being a slave to a beloved brother to a bishop. All took place during the time of Paul's imprisonment. So while Paul was shackled, God was not. While Paul was unable, God was able. And that's what Paul saw in his time of imprisonment. And that's what kept him motivated. That's what he writes here in these few verses. Now, all of you know Corrie ten Boom, right? In 1944, now Corrie ten Boom and her family were actually involved in saving quite a lot of Jews during the time of the Nazis. And in 1944, she, her sister, her beloved sister, her niece, her parents were arrested by the Nazis. 
kept in concentration camp, and all of them perished. Not Corrie ten Boom. She survived the concentration camp. Now, during the concentration camp, she wrote these words. And what she said? You, she said this, You may never know that Jesus is all you need until he's all you have. Right? You will never know that Jesus is all you need until he's all you have. So in her time of incarceration in concentration camp, she realized that Christ is all she needs. While she's not able, our Lord Jesus Christ is able. So that's what we see here in these few verses. Secondly, we also see how Paul's emotions that are driven by desires uh, are revealed. Now, one of the things that you'll realize in motivation, if you ask anybody who is motivated or there is motivation involved, motivation always involves some sort of an emotion, some background emotions that are often driven by desires. So these desires are what creates the background emotions. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what were those desires in Paul that really drove those background emotions in him? And I will talk about those background emotions later on. But you can see that Paul rejoiced. That was his background emotions. He rejoiced during this crucible moment. And what was the desire that drove him to rejoice? So Paul rejoiced by the fact that Christ was preached. And that's what, uh, what, why Paul rejoiced. His motive was to enhance the message of the gospel, not to enhance the messenger, not to enhance himself, but to enhance the message of the gospel. In that, Paul says that he rejoiced. Now, in these verses, when you see, you can see that many people preach Christ for different reasons. Some, he says here, preach Christ out of goodwill. But there are others there who preach Christ out of envy. Why did they do so well? They thought, Let, let's keep on preaching Christ because that will irritate the Roman authorities. And if it does irritate the Roman authorities, maybe that not for good, no, 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 you know, not, uh, what do you get? this fellow Paul, you know, who is a troublemaker, maybe he'll be kept in prison more longer, right? So people had ulterior motives for sometimes preaching the gospel. But you could see that Paul did not sit in prison fuming at those who intended to add suffering uh, to him by preaching the gospel. He didn't fume, but rather he said, whether people preach Christ out of goodwill or they preach Christ out of envy, he says, I rejoice because Christ is preached. He was driven by that desire. And because of that desire, it created those background emotions in him and he's able to therefore rejoice in his time of suffering. And that is why sometimes when we go through crucible moments, we got to sometimes understand what are our desires. And because those are the desires that really drive background emotions during times of crucible moments. Right. Thirdly, Paul's goal in life was sharpened. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when I gave my testimony, I, I mentioned this to you, you could see this, that during crucible moments, our goals become clarified. It's important that we clarify our goals. It becomes clarified during crucible moments. Now, every motivation has a goal. It's goal-directed, right? You are motivated because you have an important goal, an important goal that is involved. 
Now it reminds me of my daughter Rebecca. And one day, you know, I often we often say to her, uh, "Hey, Rebecca, go and do something. Go and do something." While she was with us at that time. Now, of course, she's married and gone and has her own kids. And and she went and bought a mug. It was a brilliant mug. Yeah, I still have it. And this mug says, "Nothing is impossible." Right? Nothing is impossible. And then below it says, "I do impossible every day because every day I do nothing." <laughs> right? That's what the mug says. So I do impossible every day. Right? Now that's a joke, but it also tells us that uh, a person who is unmotivated really goes through life aimless, goalless, undirected. Whereas a motivated person always has a goal, and goals form very, very important part of motivation. So during crucible moments, Paul's goal in life was really clarified. And verses 20 to 21 tells us that. First, it says that God, Paul's goal in life, number one, is to manifest Christ in his body, whether in death or in life. So verse 21, I'll read verse 21 again. It says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And that was Paul's goal number one, to manifest Christ in his body, whether in life or in death. And the goal number two in Paul's life was to live for the growth and the benefit of others. Verses 23 to 25, it says here, For I am hard-pressed between the two, whether I should live or depart to be with the Lord. He was hard-spread between the two. And he says, yes, to be with the Lord is far better. But in verse 24, he says, Nevertheless, to remain in the earth, in the flesh, is more needful for you. For I'm confident of this. I know that I shall remain and continue with you. Why? For your progress and for your joy. So Paul's goal in his life was clarified to him during that crucible moment to live for the growth and the benefit of others. James chapter 3 verses 14 to 16 tells us that worldly wisdom is often marked by envy and self-seeking. Whereas in the case of Paul, his motivation was to live for the benefit of others. Really crystallized for him and clarified to him during those crucible moments. Now a few more slides before we stop. What lessons can we really learn from this? Now, every one of us goes through crucible moments in our life. And some of you might be going through it right now. Now, remember one thing that real growth comes not through absence of crucible moments, that real growth comes actually through crucible moments. Every one of us, when our character is reshaped, refined, when we grow, it often comes to those turning points, crucible moments in our lives. And what can we learn from the motivation of Paul during those difficult times. The things that we can learn from it is this, from Paul's life is this. Number one is to realize that when we are incarcerated, unable to do anything and powerless, that God works powerfully. Although we may not see it right now, we often see it after or post crucible moments. Remember and realize that. And Paul did so. He knew that while he was not able, that God was it's also important, as we see here, 
that during our crucible moments, we not got to take time to reflect on our desires. Because those are the times that drives those emotions within us. Sometimes when people go through crucible moments, they become really bitter. Really, really bitter. And when you examine and ask them to examine, you could see those desires that drives that bitterness. So it's very important that you examine those desires. And Paul did so. He realized that his desire was to see Christ preached. And that is why he could say rejoice, even during the times of tribulation and crucible moments. Consider the goals in your lives. And one thing that is very clear is when we go through such crucible moments, that goals in your life become very clear. And you heard of my testimony. I held to those self-serving goals and self-serving desires. If I continued to do so, I would have been really, really bitter during those three years. I was bitter for about a year and a half until I realized that. Right? So it's very important during crucible moments to examine those desires, to reflect on those desires and on your goals. Now, you might ask me this question. We see these three aspects of motivation in Paul's life during his crucible moments, right? We see that God realized, or Paul realized, that he was able. He was not able, although God was able. Right? He realized his desires became clarified to him, his desires and his goals. Now, didn't this exist before his imprisonment? Oh, yes, it did. But I'm sure if you examine Paul's life with all of the stress and the strain of ministry, and Paul supported himself, right? He went around supporting himself, building tents. Because of all of those activities and stress and strain of ministries, this motivation of Paul would have receded to the background. Right? And they may not have been the real driver of why he does what he does. And sometimes that's what happens to us. In the stress and strain of work and the hustle and bustle of life, those types of activities become more important or salient and in our forefront rather than those motivation, those three aspects of motivation that should really drive us. And it was time for Paul when he was in prison to reflect on these things. And these things became very, very clear to him. Now, something that I mentioned earlier, and with this I will stop, that crucible moments, number one, as we said earlier, reveals and clarifies motives. Number two, it also refines character. Was Paul's character refined? I believe it was. And often these two things go hand in hand. When you read Philippians, the central theme of Philippians is what? What's the central theme of Philippians? It's joy. Right? The word joy, the word rejoicing, the word thankfulness appears 20 times in the book of Philippians. And out of those 20 times, from verses 12 to 26 that we just read, four times it appears there. The word joy, the word rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And what I believe is that during these crucible moments, when Paul realized all of those things, when his desires and his goals became sharpened and focused and to the fore, when he realized that God was able while he was unable, when he realized all of these things, it's, it refined his character of joy. And that is why Paul could say rejoice evermore. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. And I believe that's what happened to Paul. His real character of joy was refined 
during his crucible moments. Now, I'm sure many of you here know the Lord as your Savior, but some may not. During our crucible moments, as believers and as Christians, it's great because we have the Lord on our side. Our desires, our motivations, our goals are all because of Him. We do realize we have someone who's able to do much more than we can ask and think, who's able to act when we are unable to do so. But if some of you here do not know the Lord as your Savior, who do you have during your crucible moments? Who do you have during your crucible moments? Remember one thing. Remember one thing. That if you are alone during those crucible moments, and sometimes you are, it's a difficult and really, really difficult period in your life. You need to really understand and realize that there is a Savior who loves you. There's a Savior who cares for you. And there's a Savior who died on the cross for your sins. Now, he is not a mythical figure. He is not a story that you would read in a children's magazine. But he is a real-life historical person who came down to this earth, gave his life for you and me. And during the time of our crucible moments, he is our companion by our side. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. Father, to come before you and remember our Lord Jesus Christ. To remember the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. And as we continue to thank you and praise you and to partake of the bread and the wine, help us to remember the sufferings of our Lord for us and on our behalf. The Savior is precious and in his worthy name we pray. Amen. Thank you.